Welcome to Feminist Popcorn, the celebration and growing archive of the greatest movies about women. I'm Samantha Rare, here with my co-host Elizabeth Frankel to talk The Young Hero's Journey. Okja, Pan's Labyrinth, and welcome to the dollhouse. So we're talking about the hero's journey, which is really cool because the hero's journey is one of these tropes of storytelling that hasn't even been dominated by men. It has just been about men. It's one of the oldest tropes of storytelling. Like you can track through any kind of mythology, any kind of religion. It's like there. The hero's journey is such a human story that we're drawn to. And it's always been men. And I love that these three movies take that archetypal structure and they not only apply it to a woman but they apply it to a young woman to a little girl yeah and in some cases subvert it yeah especially when when you look at mythology like the odyssey women in those stories can be one of three things they can either be the dutiful wife waiting for the hero back home they can be the damsel in distress or they can be the femme fatale yeah who serves as an obstacle to the hero to tempt him away from the path of righteousness. So what the hero's journey is, structurally, the reason why we're able to like give it a name is because it it has looked pretty much exactly the same in all of these stories throughout time. It always starts at home in a peaceful domestic setting and there's either some kind of disturbance in the environment or a disturbance in self that they feel a call to adventure. Usually the disruption comes in the form of a visitor or a stranger coming Mm -hmm. to the town and calling upon the hero to a task. And so the hero sets out on their journey and along the way they meet a number of interesting characters who either help or hinder them and the journey leads them to either figuratively or literally the pits of hell Mm -hmm. that they need to conquer and then climb their way out of. Mm -hmm. And then it always ends in a circle with the return to home and the return to that peaceful domestic existence. My favorite example of the young hero's journey is Lord of the Rings because they think it captures this archetypal structure so verbatim. Like it's so perfectly along the lines of every plot point that you need in right. a young hero's journey. And what's another really interesting thing about Lord of the Rings? Women are not invited to that party. <laughs> they have very, very small, insignificant roles. That series is an ode to young men. And I think that's a good way for us to think about the precedence of the young hero's journey that we have. They're incredibly written and women aren't invited. And I love Lord of the Rings. I love Lord of the Rings. And we love it. We love it for those reasons. We love it because those mythological archetypes are so satisfying. Yeah. Sometimes these heroes are literal gods. They're like Superman, who is an alien who was sent down to Earth to save us. Or they're the everyman, like Luke Skywalker, who... Or Frodo. Right, who rises from the bottom. So in those circumstances, I think the hero's journey serves as like an inspiration to self, that I can be a hero. Yeah that I can be special in that way. That's why I think Pan's Labyrinth is so interesting because it's a girl who starts off as like an everyman Mm -hmm. and aspires to being that sort of savior. I want to touch on that because 
the reason why, to me, it's so special to see these little girls as heroes is because there was never a moment in my life more than when I was a child that I felt that aspiration to be a hero. Totally. I remember sitting in class in like sixth grade, staring out the window, daydreaming about you know, jumping out of my seat, mm-hmm. pulling out my jet pack and like <laughs> flying out the window and, and literally having hero fantasies. Sure. It was all because I felt so ordinary and I wanted to feel special. Mm. So when we look at these three movies together, I wanted to start with Okja because it's probably to a letter the clearest example of the hero's journey in mm. these three movies. Sure. Nija, the hero of this story, is a real superhero. Yeah. She does some incredible stunts that <laughs> if you take it out of the context of a movie, they're not real. Totally. Some of the most fantastical moments of the film have nothing to do with the fact that one of the lead characters is a genetically modified pig. <laughs> it's the fact that she's holding on to a truck by right. her bare hands as it's going 60 miles an hour on a highway. <laughs> yeah. And it, to me, it's the most surrealist of the three, even yeah. though they're all pretty surreal. They're all pretty wacky. So Okja was released in 2017. It was written and directed by Bong Joon-ho and co-written by John Ronson. And it stars So Hyun An as Mija and Tilda Swinton as Lucy Miranda, as well as a whole ensemble of actors who really create a diverse and eccentric cast of characters in this movie. Yeah. So the opening of A Hero's Journey is always in a peaceful home environment like the Shire. Mm -hmm. And that's where we start here. We start in the mountains of South Korea where Okja and Mija are best friends. Mija's grandfather is the farmer that the Miranda Corporation has given this pig to Mm -hmm. for them to raise. And you sort of get the impression that Mija and Okja don't have much to do with the Miranda Corporation. They just are having a great old time in this very calm, lush environment. Yeah, The way those first few scenes are filmed in the mountains. So beautiful. It looks like heaven on earth. Yeah. It is the most beautiful place you've ever seen. It's quiet except for like the trickling of water. There's so much food for them. The fruit is fresh. It's so beautiful. And what else did we learn before the call to adventure? Mija is about to fall off of a cliff and in moments Okja conspires this whole plan to save Mija and to sacrifice herself. That moment was very scary for me because I was like, the two lead characters can't die in the first (laughs) 10 minutes, right? What's happening? That's so typical though to an action movie that in the first 10 minutes you'll get like your first taste of the action that you should expect. Like we're going to be at this heightened level of action for the remainder of the movie. So like get ready. Totally. Another really important point it makes is that Okja is way smarter than the average animal. Absolutely. Also, we're talking about mythology. And I did a little research because I wanted to contextualize this movie in Korean mythology, Mm. as well as the majority of the mythology that I'm familiar with is, you know, Western. It's like Greek and Roman mythology and Judeo-Christian. There are a number of examples in Korean mythology of god figures living in the mountains. I think it's very specifically intentionally done of watching Mija literally run down the mountain. Yeah. Descend from her heavenous home. Down to the ravenous, ugly mortals. Yeah, exactly. And to have that very harsh shift 
from this beautiful landscape of the mountains of South Korea to first Seoul, which is full of clean lines and mm. shiny metallic colors. Sure. Moving from that to New York City, which is which is like dirtier version of that. Yeah. And then finally to this factory farm in New Jersey. Literally the worst of humanity. Yeah. A, a slaughterhouse in New Jersey. It doesn't get more <laughs> grotesque than that. And so Mage's journey is mapped out as this descent mm. into deeper levels of hell. Yeah. How we get deeper and deeper into the heart of America. American capitalist influence on this wow. little girl. American consumerist culture is the evil that that is pulsating through the movie and is reverberating into all of these corners of the story. Yeah. And I don't think there's any moment in the entire film that gets to the root of that more than the split second still shot of the villains of the movie mm -hmm. at a round table watching the pig napping video <laughs> that is a complete mirror image to the famous picture of President Obama and Hillary and Joe Biden in the Situation Room, you know, watching the capture of Bin Laden. Wow. Which, whether you agree with it or not, is an interesting point to be making. Especially in this movie, which was made in 2016 for release in 2017 in a world that everyone presumed would include a President Hillary Clinton. So to make that connection, I think, is under a different kind of environment or envisioned environment than the environment that we're in now. And I love that Nancy is even worse than Lucy. Mm -hmm. And she has this incredible line at the end of the movie where she says, Daddy was a terrible man, a real horror, but by God did he know about business. <laughs> I think that's the funniest line in the whole movie. <laughs> I think the film is making a really interesting, kind of devastating point that when you're in a position of power, like being the CEO of a corporation like yeah. this, having good intentions like Lucy or being just overtly evil like Nancy are two sides of the same coin. They're twins. They look the same. They yes. act the same. They, at different points, ran the same corporation. The fact that Lucy has pure intentions really doesn't matter that much because it's the same coin. They're the same person. They're played by the same actor. The other thing that's really exciting about this movie is that it's multinational. It was produced by Korean producers as well as American producers as well as Canadian and it was filmed in all of those three locations. Oh. And it, it feels really international when you watch it because there are scenes entirely in Korean mm. and then there are scenes entirely in English. Yeah. And there are few, very few movies that do that. Like, it's one of my biggest pet peeves. In Hollywood movies about non-English speaking people mm. where the characters will speak English to each other in a foreign accent. Oh, sure. As a way to, like... Accommodate English audiences. Exactly. Yeah. To yeah. me, it's the tackiest choice you can make <laughs> in a movie. It truly is. And it, like, always ruins the movie for me. Oh, my God. Um, I'm going to totally be aware of this now. What I love is that unless you speak both Korean and English, no matter what, you're going to be reading subtitles at some point. Right, which is awesome. But it also really plays with the idea of communication and translation as a major theme of the movie. Yeah. The whole plot at one point pivots based on a mistranslation. Right. And they even play with 
the use of subtitles within the movie, that there are inside jokes in the translations that I had no way of understanding watching the movie. Sure. I had to read about afterwards. That Steven Yoon will be saying one thing and the translation will say something completely different. Yeah. And only if you understand both languages will you be able to understand that joke. Totally. I think it's great that English-speaking people are excluded from that moment in that way because, because I can't even imagine Imagine the feeling of exclusion that people all over the world feel from Hollywood movies all the time. Mm. We were talking earlier about the fact that this movie is so unique within a very traditional act structure. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that makes it so unique to me is its tone and how erratically it shifts tone from being very serious and dramatic to being very goofy and eccentric and lighthearted. And even in the mall sequence where they're running through the mall... The score underneath is so whimsical. It really creates a totally different texture to the scene than if another director had put maybe more predictable action adventure music underneath. And I really appreciated that. The fact that Jake Gyllenhaal's character exists in a movie that could have otherwise only been bleak and only been grim about America's failings of capitalism and greed and the food industry randomly you get these moments of tremendous levity that almost feel a little out of place. But when you think of this film being perfect, you think, no, they're not out of place. What is Bong Joon-ho actually trying to say with including these moments of levity? The super like caricature kind of characters in this movie remind me way more of like kids movies. Of like Paddington 2, which just came out. Spy Kids. Yeah, of these really, really bold, funny characters (laughs) in this movie that tackles such a serious subject and has moments of being incredibly serious and so when you have those heightened characters and then you see them swearing Mm. or over and over again or committing atrocities to animals it's such a jolt it feels so incongruous it feels like uncomfortable and I think that just lends an added layer to the discomfort of the subject matter yeah but it also makes the movie a lot more entertaining (laughs) like talk about entertainment for entertainment's value yeah i think the reason this movie packs such a punch is because it's enjoyable to watch Mm. it's just like a serious subject matter doesn't need to be boring to get your point across (laughs) related to that i am so madly in love with the alf and these polite terrorists (laughs) who are so kind and want to make sure they're not in anyone's way with their terrorism i Um, love when they're telling mundo to put on his (laughs) seatbelt Before they crash their truck into his truck. And at the very end of the mall sequence, one of the members of ALF turns to everyone in the mall and says, I really hope we didn't inconvenience anyone. I know. You mentioned the soundtrack, Mm -hmm. and I think the soundtrack work is excellent in this movie. Including Annie's song. Yeah. so brilliant and clever. And goofy. Speaking of this movie being international, they use... Balkan gypsy funk music. They use Buenos Aires tango music. They use American folk music. It's this global map of music underscoring this movie about these international relationships. That is really cool. Let's talk about the members of the ALF because... (laughs) Oh my gosh, she's giggling. (laughs) (laughs) Sam mentioned in episode two her relationship to... Timothy Chalamet. You're so quiet right now. You need to raise your voice. 
that has been my relationship in the past to Paul Dano, and that's all I'll say. <laughs> She's blushing. I think it's funny how, like, every episode so far has included us, like, giggling over, like, a cute boy. He's not just a cute boy, Sam. <laughs> Let's not minimize him to that. And, like, to be fair, like, there are there are women actresses that we feel the same way about totally. that, like, we'll get to later, probably. Yeah, sure. Like, definitely when we get into Winona Ryder territory. <laughs> But yeah, there's something to be said. Paul Dano is one of the greatest living actors. Let's be fair. <laughs> She's silent. <laughs> and I was just chuffed <laughs> to see Stephen Young in this movie. Yes, I am introduced to this amazing new actor who I know nothing about, and he's so great. So I went through a period of my life when I was obsessed with The Walking Dead. Cool. I'm I'm really into like all kinds of fantasy or sci-fi genre. Apoc- yeah. yeah. Um that's really like my <laughs> bread and butter. Bread and butter. Yeah. <laughs> What's interesting about Steven Yeun is that the reason why you haven't seen him in anything is because he just spent seven years working on The Walking so Dead. Cool. He was this, like, romantic figure in The Walking Dead. He mm. was, like, for a while, like, the romantic lead. His character, for a lot of people, symbolized, like, the hope for the future. Mm. And so when he exited that show, a lot of viewers stopped watching. Oh, wow. And for that to be the number one show in America for the most part. And for Steven Yeun, this Korean American actor to carry that role. Like to me, he should have graduated from The Walking Dead and had Ryan Gosling's career. He Mm. should have become America's next romantic leading male. I'm waiting for Steven Yeun's career to significantly blossom in the next few years. I really hope it does. I really hope that like American producers can like See the value. Yeah, like get their shit together and give him the roles that he deserves. And he, yeah, his his role in this movie is small, but he really leaves an impact. Yeah. Well, going back to the movie, I feel like everyone really leaves an impact. You know, one of my favorite characters is actually Lucy, who could have otherwise been very two-dimensional, very villainous. And I was so resentful at the movie for making me care about her. I found myself very endeared to her and knew Mm. that she had the purest of intentions within a very corrupt, evil world she was navigating. And it, it would have been so easy in a lesser movie for her to just be the villain. And I think that's a mixture of the writing and the fact that Tilda Swinton is just incredible. I also just love, side note, that... Paul Dano and Steven Yeun's characters are named J and K. After Men in Black, you think? Like, in direct reference to Men in Black. And, like, Paul Dano is literally wearing the Men in Black costume. (laughs) I think that's so weird and funny. I think Bong Joon-ho, in a number of moments in this movie, makes reference to, you know, famous Hollywood movies, Mm. Hollywood action movies. And I think it's just funny that Paul Dano and Steven Yeun's characters probably chose their names because they're in this organization where they would like choose code names and that they like decided to name themselves after the men in black, which are (laughs) these like heroic male figures. Sure. And I think in some way that's making fun of the fact that they probably think that they're the heroes of this story. Mm. Yeah. And also that the characters in men in black are the liaisons between humans and aliens who, for the most part, in Men in Black are misunderstood. Mm-hmm. You know, a few are villainous, but most of the aliens are just trying to get by on Earth. And I think that's the same thing here, is they see themselves as ambassadors to mm-hmm. animals. 
which they are. I think the ALF are great. You know, they make some bad choices along the way, but I think they are very heroic in the movie. But I do think that this could have easily been Jay's movie. A thousand percent. And, and, that, and that Mija would have been a supporting character exactly, as a damsel. Exactly. And and he even behaves in a in a very like flashy heroic way. <laughs> like when he appears in disguise in her hotel room and he takes off his glasses and he says, It's me. When he just casually steps out onto the fire escape and Mija's like, Where did you go? He follows the like stereotypical behaviors of the hero. Sure. And even ending with him in the factory in the final yeah. scene kind of proclaiming this very this very righteous statement about valuing all living creatures, yeah. right? Mm. To Nancy Mirando. And it falls flat. It falls flat because he doesn't understand the true stakes of this moment like Mija does. He values his role, his, his symbolism and his beliefs where Mija knows that she's about to lose her best friend and so she's able to speak in Nancy's language, which is the language of money. I was so taken with the grimness, but the reality that what helps Mija win in the end is not her good heart. It's not her relentlessness. It's not the fact that she is the hero of this journey. It's the fact that she understands what money means to Americans. Mm -hmm. She figures out how to win Nancy over in the one language that Nancy understands, which is capitalism. It has nothing to do with anyone having any heart or morality. It is a business transaction. And it's funny that you see her with the English translation book on the plane. Mm -hmm. And this whole movie takes place over the course of a couple of days. And so she had a few hours, really, Mm -hmm. to learn a few sentences in English. And she chose Hmm. that the sentence that she was going to learn was, I want to buy Okja. Yeah. Because she knew that using gestures of heart or morality probably wouldn't fly. And it's interesting that we're talking about like the language of money Mm -hmm. and this movie that deals with language, that deals with translation, Yeah, that when this little girl learns English, she also learns consumerism. Totally. That's so fucked up. God, it's a good movie. (laughs) It's a great movie. And it's also a shame because up until this moment in Mija's life, the only thing that mattered was this emotional connection between one living creature and another. Mm. All of these themes of consumerism and capitalism and American greed were completely foreign to her. And the movie uses the vessel of learning a language, learning English, as this metaphor for learning how greed and corruption rule the world Mm -hmm. and will ultimately kill her friend if she doesn't step in. And so it ends with Mija and Okja and the little baby pig returning to the mountains Mm -hmm. a little wiser a little more jaded and a little more grateful for having each other yeah meanwhile all the rest of the super pigs are going off to slaughter it was incredibly uncomfortable for me to see the amount of pigs getting prepped for slaughter i think that imagery of living creatures being crowded in spaces like that waiting to go through a building for death i feel like we've seen that imagery before yeah and it was very on the nose in a way that i thought was was beautiful and brilliant and also very Mm -hmm. very discomforting and we're going to return to that theme in pan's labyrinth totally this is also the movie that now notoriously is the like vegan converter i i'm not officially vegetarian or vegan but i like to think i 
consume as little meat as possible. Uh And there's absolutely no way that you're not actively thinking about your own choices the whole time you're watching this movie. Yeah. I was contemplating my own existence as a meat eater every single minute I was watching this movie. And you know what? I'm really happy with, as we contextualize Mija's story in the hero's journey, the fact that she's allowed to go home at the end and live a life of peace Mm -hmm. And domestic tranquility with the people that she loves or the animals that she loves. Yeah. And that that's okay. Like, that doesn't make her less of a hero. She had her hero moment. Yeah. And she did her task. She completed her task, which was saving her friend. It was never her task to save the world. And she now deserves this life. Mm. But I'm also comforted by the idea that the ALF is still going to be there. Yeah, they're still going to continue their fight. Because they didn't have their heroic moment. They messed up. Yeah. They're going to continue the fight in Mija's honor. Yeah. Speaking of mythology, I'm particularly obsessed with the Orpheus myth. Mm. To summarize very quickly, Orpheus descends through hell to rescue his lover, Eurydice. And he's given permission to take her out as long as they follow two conditions. Eurydice has to walk behind Orpheus. Orpheus is not allowed to look back to see if she's behind him. And Eurydice is not allowed to call to him to prove that she's there. And so it's an exercise of trust. And in different versions of the story, one of them or both of them mess that up and Eurydice is lost forever. And so I was really struck when Jay is on stage with Mija and he says, look at me, don't look behind you. Don't look back at the atrocity that has happened to your best friend, Okja. The obvious connection there is that Mija is Orpheus. Mija is the hero of the story. Who can't turn around. Right. The less obvious connection is that Jay is Hades. Mm. Jay allowed this atrocity to happen for his own purposes. He wanted that footage. He wanted Okja to be raped so that he could show the world. Which again is very complicated because I'm so glad that that footage exists now. Right. For the rest of the world to see. So it's not like he was acting out of anything villainous. But he was okay using Okja as his casualty for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what I love throughout the movie is that none of these characters that Mija meets along the way are perfectly good or perfectly evil. Everyone is corrupted in some way. Which I love. Yeah. Except Mija. Except for Mija. And Okja. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let's move on to Pan's Labyrinth. I have loved this movie for so long. I would probably say that it was one of the first movies that I ever saw that felt kind of like out of the ordinary to me Hmm. and made me say, oh, yeah, I'm a movie fan. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it was that for a lot of people. Sure. This movie was huge in my high school. I feel like half my high school class went as the pale man for Halloween. (laughs) So Pan's Labyrinth was released in 2006. It was written and directed by Guillermo del Toro, and it stars Ivana Baquero as Ophelia, Maribel Verdú as Mercedes, and Sergi López as Captain Vidal. We have this movie in this episode for exploring the young hero's journey because Ophelia, the protagonist, takes it upon herself. She's so active. She demands agency in a reality that gives her no agency. And she carves out for herself this hero's journey. If you took out all the fantasy scenes of this movie and all the scenes where she was the Princess Moana who has to go on these tasks and save her brother, all that would be left is a young girl living during wartime and who dies tragically. 
That's all the agency that she gets. She gets no moments for herself. And I think Ophelia is aware of that, that there Mm -hmm. is no structure, there's no rhyme or reason to the tragedies happening in her life. And so she applies this structure onto it to make more sense of what's happening to her. I find it really exciting that this movie is exploring what a fairy tale is without it actually being a fairy tale. The movie itself is a historical political drama that happens to include fairy tales in it. But to say that it's a fairy tale is, I think, to minimize Ophelia's reality. Although... What I love about it is that it takes one of the most archetypal characters of fairy tales, which is the evil stepmother, (laughs) and it subverts it, and del Toro turns it into the evil stepfather, Yeah, which I've never seen before Mm -hmm. in any other movie. And makes so much more sense, doesn't it? It's so yes. much it's so much more obvious that it would be a stepfather who has power as a man. Well, here's the thing. The archetype of the evil stepmother to me is the most vicious anti-woman character in all of literature. Oh my god. Because what it says is that the purity of being a woman only exists in mothers, in women mm. that do their duty, so to speak, as women and reproduce and create children, and that a woman who isn't a mother will inherently be evil and have ulterior motives. And not only that, but will resent the duties of motherhood. Exactly. And her villainy always ends up being about jealousy and vanity Mm. and these kind of fears that men have about women. (laughs) Totally. I think it's also really important to acknowledge that the stepfather here doesn't even hate Ophelia. He doesn't know that she's there. Mm -hmm. He doesn't even acknowledge her because he is a man and she is a young girl and therefore she is useless to him. What I also love is what they do with the character of Mercedes because she is a kind of secondary mother figure in this story. Yeah, the nurse. She's allowed to step in where Ophelia's mother can't because she's ill and provide guidance to her in a supportive way, even though she's not her natural mother, her birth mother. You're saying that the movie simultaneously vindicates women who are not mothers by birth as maternal figures, while it also breaks through this image that step-parents are only evil if they're women, and actually step-fathers also have the capability of being villainous. Yeah, it does all of that. Yeah, Mercedes is my favorite character of the film. When I was thinking about the formatting of this podcast, I thought about Pan's Labyrinth. Mm. And I had to break down what about Pan's Labyrinth felt so feminist to me mm-hmm. and how I could apply that to the rules for the podcast, that there must be at least two women at the center of the story. This movie would not be feminist without Mercedes in it. Mm. It would be the story of the downfall of a little girl and her story being Captain V. Dolls. Mm-hmm. And his arc would be the major arc of the movie. Mm. Because Mercedes exists, because she exists as a parallel to Ophelia, that they are both heroes in this story. Ophelia is the hero of the fantasy world and Mercedes is the hero of the real world. Mm. Mercedes living on after Ophelia to me is the true heroic arc of the story. So would you then say of this structure we've been talking about, Mm -hmm. the hero's journey, that Mercedes' beginning is Spain pre-Civil War? Mm. 
and her setting out on a task is to go to Captain Vidal's house and become a spy for the rebels. The pits of hell yeah. for her has been Captain Vidal's house. I think that's brilliant. So that's Mercedes' heroic journey. What's Ophelia's, considering her journey has the two worlds intertwining so deeply? Mm-hmm. Parts of her journey are in the fantasy world and parts of her journey are in the real world. Ophelia's journey starts in the prologue yeah. of the story. It starts in that minute-long narration that she was the princess of the underworld. Mm -hmm. She felt dissatisfied with her ordinary existence Mm. and wanted to live in the world of humans. And so she left her home. And so when we meet Ophelia, we're meeting her in the midst of her journey Mm. as she will, throughout the course of the movie, meet these different mythological characters who will help her on her journey back home to her kingdom in the underworld. Although, can I posit something? Yes. She's she's reading a fairy tale in the car, right? When we first meet her. Who's to say that when she's reading that, she isn't reading about Princess Moana and she decides retroactively to begin her journey in the underworld. That she, as a normal, ordinary girl, has decided she's a hero and therefore has to give herself backstory. Yeah. (laughs) And that's why we hear that opening prologue. I have to say, there's an entire interpretation of this movie that we're not even mentioning. Right. Which is totally valid. Yeah. That the fantasy elements are actually happening. And she's a princess. Yeah. Yeah. That's just not the interpretation that we're taking in this discussion. I wasn't thinking of this movie more in the lines of Harry Potter, where a young ordinary person realizes that they have extraordinary abilities. I thought of it more in dialogue with the film Life is Beautiful, Mm. where a father creates a world for his son to exist in so that he doesn't have to face the atrocities of the Holocaust. To me, this movie seems a lot more in line with that or in line with another one of my favorite movies, A Little Princess, yeah, directed by Alfonso Cuaron, who co-produced this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, that movie is so conscious about taking a young girl's coping mechanisms of fantasy to survive her reality. Yeah, We'll talk about A Little Princess at some point in this podcast because yeah, it's we will. just incredible. And to me, there are a lot of clues throughout the movie that suggest that this really is is a fantasy for Mm. Ophelia, that the fantasy elements are only ever seen by Ophelia, Mm. that we shift often from what she is seeing to what the other characters of the film are seeing, that she sees this puppeteered magic mandrake root and Captain Vidal holds up. It's like a gross root. Just like a gross real root. The same thing also with the incredible moment of her going down the rabbit hole in the tree. Yeah. We see it as her entering this magical sort of fortress of the frog, right? In reality, she probably just went and was playing down in a tree. In the mud. In the mud. Yeah. Which Um, is totally legit for mm -hmm. what a young girl's fantasy life is. You mentioned Life is Beautiful. This is a story that takes place in 1944 in the midst of the Holocaust, which was happening in a different part of Europe. But I was struck for the first time in this viewing of Pan's Labyrinth when Ophelia descends into the lair of the pale man and she sees a pile of 
children's shoes. Yeah, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty unavoidable, that reference. Yeah. In many ways, the monsters of Ophelia's stories are simply just fantastical mirror images of the monsters in real life. And to specify the monsters in real life, specifically fascism. Yeah. That all of these fantastical creatures, be it the fawn, the frog, or the pale man, what is it that defines them? Is there authoritarian rules? You can't eat the food. You have to do things in a very specific order, in a specific way that satisfies the fawn. It's no different from fascism. Ophelia is taking the culture and the rules of her world and is applying them to her fantasy life because that's all that she knows. And she's trying to make sense of them. She's trying to make sense of fascism. Yeah. And she's doing it through this beautiful fawn character and through this wicked pale man character Mm -hmm. and through diving down deep into a tree. That's how she's reclaiming agency over what's happening to her because there's no way to understand fascism as a child. There's barely any way to understand it as an adult. This is her reclaiming her circumstances and applying it to the language that she knows, which is fairy tales. Yeah. It's cool. It's so good. (laughs) I just want to touch on just the gorgeous artistry of this movie. I think one of the reasons why it's so beloved is because it takes such a strong aesthetic point of view. Yes, totally. The costuming is stunning. Not only, you know, Ophelia's costumes, like like her little green Alice in Wonderland dress, but the physical costuming of the monsters is so breathtaking. And I we really take for granted the work that goes into creating creatures like that without CGI. You know, CGI has become the vessel to create those characters in, in modern movie making. But that was a real fun. Yeah, that uh, was a on set. that was Doug Jones yeah. in a full body costume. That's amazing. And not only that, he was in that costume creating the physical life of the character mm-hmm. and speaking the lines, speaking the, the words in Spanish. Right. Even that, if he was dubbed. Exactly. That Pablo Adan ended up dubbing over and that these this single character was created by the collaboration of these two actors mm. in such a gorgeous way. I think one of the things that bonds you and me together in terms of our taste, mm-hmm. we're both very, very interested in how spectacle can tell a story. Yeah. Not just that how spectacle can live for spectacle's sake. We really like to see how aesthetic can further a story exactly. and further character development. I can't think of any other movie that does that so beautifully. And like I you it's like with such a fierce point of view than this movie. The characters are so detailed in how they look. The fawn is kind of terrifying. He's made of bark and moss. But he doesn't look like James McAvoy in Narnia. He looks a hell of a lot scarier than that. He looks a little like sexually intimidating as well. He looks demonic. I was at once afraid for Ophelia's safety around the fawn. Mm. And I never knew whether to trust him. Yeah. It's also so amazing to see how scary and almost disgusting these creatures are. Yeah. The pale man is hard to look at. Yeah. And when the toad regurgitates... Like its innards. Yeah. It feels like the only way that Ophelia can imagine a fantasy world is with violence because that's all she's grown up to know. She's not safer in the fantasy world. She's just in control of the narrative. Right. She doesn't know a world without violence. She wouldn't even know how to fantasize about it. Mm-hmm. Which is really devastating. Yeah. Um, yeah, I want to talk about the violence in this movie because it's real violence. Yeah. And I don't I don't mind that. 
necessarily, but I do think it's funny that this week was initially centered around the young hero's journey, but has been curated in a way that these are three grim, bleak, arguably violent movies. Each of these movies is very aggressive in a very grown-up way, even though they're all focusing on young children. Yeah. Pan's Labyrinth is hard for me to watch. I'm a, I'm a grown-up for the most part. And there are some scenes that I had to watch through a pillow. Mm. It was really scary. <laughs> Well, as it should be, I'm I'm sort of proud of the fact that I'm not so desensitized to violence that seeing a man bash another man's head with a wine bottle over and over and over again can still traumatize me. I think that's I think that's a good thing. Well, I think it's also a really impressive statement of the movie that even with these horrible, scary monsters, the most terrifying figure in the movie it's is just... Captain Vidal. It's just a man. Yeah. Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm obsessed with the physical tasks in the movie. Often, Del Toro will have close-ups of his character's hands Mm. performing tasks. So Captain Vidal's tasks are shaving, shining his boots, fixing his watch. Drinking. Mm -hmm. Mercedes' tasks are chopping vegetables and milking a cow. Mm. They're these like gentle domestic tasks. And then it'll have a quick shot of her cleaning off her knife and folding it into her apron. And so Mercedes is this incredible character of having this nurturing maternal side that she can comfort Ophelia Mm. in her shoulder and at the same time feel that weight, that pressure of the knife yeah at her center i think there are some actresses that can just do that they can turn on and off so fast like that actually you know i know it's a tv show and i know that that's a little out of our jurisdiction but i genuinely think that's why law and order svu has been on the air Mm -hmm. for 37 years because mariska hargitay has this way of being so gentle and gracious with the survivors and then being a superhero, like a proper superhero, yeah. two scenes later. I think that speaks to the success of that show. You need women who can be both. And talk about Chekhov's knife, <laughs> right? We're just like, we're given those couple of glimpses of that knife. Yeah. And we know that it's going to come back later. Right. <laughs> and it comes back in such a great way. Especially because Vidal completely underestimates this woman. She is spying on him right under his nose. Literally under his nose. The captain even says at one point, for God's sake, she's just a woman. Yeah. Like, it it doesn't get clearer than that. (laughs) I also love that the person that she is fighting for is her brother. Mm. Like, once again, the hero is not fighting to save a lover They're fighting to save a loved one without the kind of sexuality attached. Yeah. And I do like that in Pan's Labyrinth, which is separate in this way from Okja and Dollhouse, they're both men. She's saving her brother and Ophelia is saving her brother. Yeah. These are both men who in other aspects of the narrative could be seen as their own heroes. Vidal sort of worships this baby from the get-go as he's going to be the heir to Vidal's legacy. So this baby already has prowess and masculinity Mm -hmm. attached to him. Uh, Mercedes' brother is the lead of the rebels. You know, you'd think that he would be the strong heroic type. And he ends up being dependent on Mercedes being able to save him. And the only reason she's able to save him is because she's underestimated. Yeah. 
because her capabilities are completely invisible to Vidal. Yeah. And so even in the final moments when she's rescued by her brother, that moment is only possible because of the months of work that she has done to save them. Another way that this movie totally subverts fairy tale is in the mother. Mm. It's such an annoying recurring theme of fairy tales of the dead mother Mm. that, you know, a princess like Cinderella or something, her mother dies before the story even starts. Mm. And so we see her in the aftermath of that. Mm. But this movie deals with the actual trauma Mm. of why Watching a parent's prolonged illness and death Mm -hmm. in a very real way. Yeah. That it doesn't sugarcoat that. It doesn't romanticize the idea of losing a parent. Yeah. It is thoroughly traumatic. Yeah. And I think that's really respectful. I agree. The value I thought that the mother really had by being a part of the story is that without her, the two lead women in the movie, Mercedes and Ophelia, are so clearly a stand-in for good and for hope and for resistance. And you might think that the film sort of romanticizes women Mm. in a arguably two-dimensional way, that there are no flawed women, there are no women that they're pure of heart. They're pure of heart and that none of them actually participate in the patriarchy that is oppressing them. This mother, forgive me, I don't think is very helpful to Ophelia. And I know she wants to be, but she gets Ophelia in this situation. She marries a man who you could have met within five minutes and known that he was this monster. And for her own purposes, again, I don't know this mother's backstory. For all I know, it was absolutely necessary that she had a powerful man as a husband. Uh, Who's to say? But she made the active choice to threaten and endanger her children by moving into this man's house. I got the impression that she was doing the opposite, Mm. that she felt like he provided a safety for her in this new regime. Yeah. I want to talk more about the aesthetic. I really love how this movie seesaws between really bright, buoyant, joyous colors and really dark colors. Mm. Like it's these rich navy blues and grays and browns mixed with sunlight and, you know, a peppy day out in Spain. You go back and forth between when the film is acknowledging how grim the world is and this commitment to not seeing the world in a grim way. I was struck in the opening scene when and Carmen, Ophelia's mother, says fairy tales aren't real. Mm-hmm. And then we zoom out. And we're in a fairy tale forest. Exactly. The sunlight is shining through the trees in such a magical way and illuminating these bugs in the air that yeah. might as well be fairies. Yeah. It's like a Rococo painting. Yeah. Even if this is the real world and it's a separate world from the fantasy world that Ophelia has created, mm-hmm. there's still magic. Yeah. That's why I love the final shot where the flower blossoms on the tree branch that Ophelia touched before she went down into the tree. It's to imply that when magical people touch the world, they leave magic behind. Even if that magic isn't as overt as a fawn or another realm that you enter into to meet a pale man. I mean, we we just discussed Uptown Girls. Yeah, that movie explores magic within reality. That people have magical effects on each other. Yeah. The film creates settings that are so relentless and fierce that they're kind of irresistible. Like when you go down into the pale man's lair and you see all of that food, you really don't blame her for wanting to take <laughs> a bite yeah. because it's just sitting there. It actually reminded me of Okja. 
I was thinking, this is such an embarrassing wealth of food, and he's sleeping, and people are starving in the hills of Spain, fighting the fascist government, and this fantasy character who is sort of representing Vidal in terms of greed and evil and eating children, essentially just like throwing human beings away if they don't serve him. To see all that food there was a really great aesthetic method to show fascists having resources to waste while the people fighting them are struggling to survive. And I mean, talk about a visual connection. He's sitting at the head of the table, just like Vidal was yeah. in a previous scene. And in front of him was that embarrassment of, of riches, of food. Mm -hmm. They're eating the rabbits in that scene yeah. that he had taken from that father and son who he brutally murdered for no reason. Yeah. Meanwhile, we see the townspeople lining up at the cellar door to get their literal daily bread. Loaf of bread. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I mean, talk about like men playing gods. Yeah. Give us our daily bread. To end our conversation on Pin's Labyrinth, I just want to celebrate a movie that if you put it on mute, you would miss out on such tremendous storytelling. But on the other hand, you probably wouldn't. I think you can actually get all of the nuances and beauty of all these characters from the aesthetic and mm. from the visuals, from the way they look at each other, from the way the fawn moves. I bet you can probably follow this movie exactly if you turned off the sound. And that to me seems like such an achievement. So now we come to Welcome to the Dollhouse, yeah. which is in many ways the exact opposite of <laughs> the two movies that we just discussed. It gives you a child who is not a hero. Eager to be a hero, eager to find herself in a structure right. that makes sense where she's noble and she saves the day. And it's just not going to happen. Right. Because maybe the world is a lot more cruel than that. Yeah. I had a real moment this week watching this movie. When I was in middle school, I watched this movie over and over and over <laughs> oh again. Oh my God. I loved this movie so much. It was the only movie that I thought really respected what like the traumas of middle school were. Mm. And a couple of weeks ago, I just saw Bo Burnham's new movie, Eighth Grade, yeah. and I, I felt connected to it in the same way. And I think it's such an incredible privilege that there are now more movies like that. But when I was a kid, Welcome to the Dollhouse was really the only movie I had that I thought reflected me or reflected my world. And why I've enjoyed doing this podcast so much is I think I thought when we started this podcast that this movie was really, really going to stand out as one of the best movies ever made. And you know what? When you talk about it in an episode with Pan's Labyrinth and Okja, and you've had all these episodes so far of these incredible movies, Welcome to Dollhouse is still incredible, but it's not as rare as I thought it was. Mm. And that's why it's so important for young girls to have available to them movies where they see themselves. When you only have one of these movies, it is going to seem incredibly singular and precious and important and rare. But when it's in really good company, it kind of seems like just another incredible movie. Great. Like I used to think this was the only great movie in the world. <laughs> I made a note watching this movie which completely goes against what you're talking about, oh, right. watching it as a child. <laughs> My note is, this is not a movie for children. Oh, yes, it is. It was for me. I could not imagine watching this as a child. I would never show it to my children. I would insist my children watch it. <laughs> 
to me, this movie is for adults to look back on their childhoods and sort of validate how shitty they were. Why would it not be for children? Why can't we respect children enough to validate what they're going through in the moment that it is as ugly and crass as they are really experiencing it? I guess. Why can't they be that? Why do they have to be lonely in their torture? Why can't they be validated that their torture is is ubiquitous because it it feels so hopeless middle school feels hopeless anyway you might as well get great art out of it and feel less lonely i think it does the opposite it gave me hope this this movie gave me hope that i wasn't the only one there was a filmmaker out there who was a man no less right who really thought this was the most important story to tell that's why i'm so taken with bo burnham right now that he's such an exciting artist i love his stand-up i love everything he touches And the fact that his directorial debut as a filmmaker, the most important story he thought he should be telling is about a girl in eighth grade. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. I'm I'm so turned on by that. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) But to go back to what you're saying and to what I had mentioned earlier about these three movies being grim, this movie is grim. It's grim. It is bleak. But it's not any bleaker than middle school. And we make every middle schooler go through that shit. It's not like particularly mean. It's as mean as middle school. I think it's a little hyperbolic. Yeah, but that's what art is. I know, exactly. Like when the entire auditorium of children is shouting wiener dog at her. The reason I think that's one of the coolest moments in the movie is because it theatricalizes an energy that already exists in reality. Yeah. Where when you're giving a speech like that or you're just merely existing in middle school and you feel like everyone is looking at you and judging you and torturing you. This moment captures that energy and puts it in a theatrical moment that you can point at and say, that's what it feels like to be in middle school. You have hundreds of kids shouting at you. That's what it feels like. So in that sense, I don't really think it feels hyperbolic. I think it just theatricalizes something that is otherwise very passive aggressive Mm -hmm. and that you can't really point at and is nuanced. Welcome to the Dollhouse came out in 1995. It was written and directed by Todd Solans and it stars Heather Matarazzo as Don Wiener. Heather, you might recognize from a movie she did a little time later called Princess Diaries in which she played Lily Moskowitz, the host of Shut Up and Listen, <laughs> the our idol in every way. Not you, I don't even know you. <laughs> Heather Matarazzo, we'd love to have you on our show. So let's put this movie in the context of our larger conversation, which yeah. is the young hero's journey. Yes. What's so cool about this movie is it takes this grand epic archetypal structure and we see a young girl in reality fighting for that kind of experience, fighting for something as cathartic and heroic and important as something that would happen to a hero and it doesn't happen and she wants it and it doesn't happen and she wants it and it doesn't happen. And then the movie ends and that's it. Yeah. And it's so satisfying to see someone reaching to be important, reaching to be heroic and because of her circumstances and maybe because of her personality and the way that she knows how to talk to people in this moment in her life. She can't be heroic like Nija or like Ophelia. She's just a lonely little girl. And then the movie ends. And for some reason, I think that's so satisfying. I don't think that that's bleak. I think that we can see humanity in that. 
we can be bonded in the fact that some people live ordinary lives. And in that, there's something extraordinary. I also love that the hero moment of the story when she actually goes to New York mm. to try to rescue her sister. It's about five minutes of the movie. Yeah. And she doesn't do anything. She doesn't actually save Missy. She just stands there. Exactly. And Missy comes up from the subway. And I also think it's really interesting that her motivations for this heroic moment are not the typical motivations of a hero. For example, Mija, who is rescuing her best friend because she loves her. Mm. I don't think Dawn is interested in rescuing Missy because she loves Missy. No, what's more tragic about this movie is that Dawn is so deprived of love right. and affection and even just basic communication. Nobody talks to her in this movie. And when they do, they're making fun of her and they're judging her yeah. and they're berating her. All she wants is to be loved. And while that makes her such a devastating character that I love, that I think a lot of people love... It is why she's not a typical hero that right. goes on a hero's journey the way that Mija or Ophelia do. They both have motivations that are maybe more generous of spirit. Whereas Dawn, not just that she wants to be loved, she just wants to stop being bullied. She wants to stop being abused. Yeah. That to me feels so human. Her fantasy of her rescue of Missy. Is that people are nice to her. Is that her mother embraces her and calls her a good daughter. Yeah, and so is that she loves her. That to me is so painful and yeah. beautiful that Dawn wants to be a hero just so she can be loved because in the real world, she feels so unloved. Not only that she feels unloved, she is unloved. Mm -hmm. Everyone in this movie hates her. Yeah. One of my favorite plays is called Cloud Nine by Carol Churchill. And I think Cloud Nine and this movie have a lot in common because they both explore tragic circumstances in very funny ways. <laughs> <laughs> Cloud9 sort of asks the question, what can you do when something is so sad if not to laugh? Sometimes the only way to respond to a situation that is so sad is to find it funny. And I think that's really what this film is. In general, the whole tone of this movie is it's so sad that our only response is to laugh. I was, I was watching this movie with my partner and at the first time Brandon says, I'm going to rape you, both of us just burst out laughing Yeah, because we were uncomfortable, not because we thought it was funny, but because we were so terrified for her. What else were we going to do? There was no way else to respond but to laugh. And I think that's great when you can mess with an audience's mind to rewire their brains, to have them have crisscross responses to certain actions, I think is really exciting. I think one of the most graphic aspects of this movie is its language. These children have horrible potty mouths. Yeah. All of them speak like sailors. And the reason I find that so exciting is because none of them know what any of these words mean. It's the same thing we were talking about in 13, that Evie and Tracy are doing things with their bodies that they don't yet understand. In Welcome to the Dollhouse, all the characters have a vocabulary of words that they do not understand. They use these words because they know they can hurt people. He threatens to rape her, not because he actually would, or would probably even know how, but because he knows it will scare her and his goal is to scare her. Mm -hmm. And um, one could argue that he gets her in this situation and takes her out to this place because he wants to kiss her. And it's nothing closer to rape than that, that he just wants to have a kiss with her. I think that's what the movie is saying, but do you think that's irresponsible? I think it would if Brandon 
was any more likable of a character. I think we do like him because she likes him, but I think the film makes no excuses that this is a good character whose actions are commendable. None of these characters are commendable, including Dawn. Everyone is fairly unlikable if you met them in real life. I don't think this movie condones the way Brandon approaches her. He's He's a monster, but he's a human monster? Um, here's the thing, and this is why I say that this isn't a movie for children. Sure. If I had watched this as a child, I would have been madly in love with Brandon. Oh my god. I wasn't at all as a child. I was always obsessed with Draco Malfoy. I was like one of those girls who saw, you know, he's he's a bad boy with a heart of gold that may be buried deep, 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 deep down. But if the right person were to be there to like draw it out of him, it would happen. And what's tragic about that is that like J.K. Rowling had to like come out and like make a statement in the early 2000s that little girls have to stop loving Draco Malfoy. Like he's a, he's a bad character. Like like she was just like inundated with messages from little girls saying mm. how much they adored Draco Malfoy. I think this goes back to our larger conversation of how little girls make choices for themselves about who they want to be and the way that they look at the world. That's all so interesting that you say all that and you bring that up because I have never in my life thought of Brandon as a character worthy of Dawn, that they should have ended up together, that I crushed over. Brandon was always a monster to me. Sure, He was as much a monster as anyone else in the movie. And she lives in a world of monsters, as we're saying in The Young Hero's Journey. She's in the pits of hell. And so no one's going to be, like, attractive. That doesn't mean they're not a great character. I think Brandon's a great character. But when I was 12 and I recognized Brandon in many of the boys in my middle school who I was terrified of, it didn't make me suddenly want to fucking date them. But what it did do is it allowed me to maybe offer some humanity to them that they weren't showing to me. Right. This movie gave me a platform to look at these bullies in school and say, maybe there's something going on in their home life that I'm not aware of. And the only way they know how to communicate with me is to torture me. But that doesn't mean that that's all there is to them. So in that way, I think Brandon is a really great character. But I certainly don't condone having a crush on him. <laughs> <laughs> I just think his last moment is so romantic. When he's You're like... weird. <laughs> fucked up. Right, but it's like purposefully romantic when you think he's just this like mean old boy and then he's like, (laughs) I make the first move and kisses her in this very romantic way and then like jumps out the window. I think that's Dawn and Brandon trying, similar to Pan's Labyrinth in the way that we're seeing young kids trying to reclaim agency and reclaim their narrative in a world where they are otherwise helpless. I think that moment isn't about actually being romantic. It's about Brandon and Dawn stealing phrases and stealing mannerisms that they've learned from movies or learned from older people and are trying to adopt it themselves to give themselves more maturity and more agency. I don't think Brandon knows what he's saying. And Dawn certainly doesn't. Both of them are just making up scenarios. Instead of playing house, they're playing sexuality. They're playing sex because they don't know yet what it means. But in terms of like, yeah, recreating those figures from stories from media if no one is there to tell brandon that his behavior is wrong like clearly his father is not going to tell him you can't threaten to rape a girl because you actually just like her you can't do that like it may seem cute 
now, but it certainly won't be later when he's an adult and he's continuing these same behaviors. I agree with what you're saying, but I wonder about the use of the word cute. I don't think the intention of the film was to make Brandon look cute. I sort of think it was. Really? Yeah. And maybe that's just because, like, this movie was created by a man. I think there's a little more sympathy given to that character that, you know, culture has kind of taught us that, you know, if he bullies you, it's only because he likes you. Mm. I think that's a really destructive societal rule. I obviously a thousand percent agree, but I don't really think the film is actually saying that because if it did, they would end up together. But they don't. He leaves her. Right. And she's miserable. And in a couple of years, she'll probably grow up and be like, that was a really, really fucked up relationship that I almost had. I dodged a bullet there. Yeah. I don't think this film romanticizes him or their relationship. I think it shows how we really make the best with what we have when we're young. He was the best she had. Everyone around her was horrible and mean to her. And this guy who was also mean and horrible to her showed her the slightest amount of kindness occasionally. And that was the best she had. Yeah. And I think that's sort of more what the movie is saying. That's so emblematic of so many, I think, abusive relationships. Thousand percent, yeah. Speaking of of these kids saying things that they don't understand, especially Mm -hmm. the, the horrible language that they use, they show this little girl, Dawn, who's so bullied at school, go home and recreate that same abuse towards her little sister. Exactly. That to me is the evidence of Todd Salons being hyper aware that these characters don't know what they're saying. Yeah. Because all she knew is that she felt abuse from these words at school and she wants her sister to feel abuse. So yeah. she doesn't have to be alone in her misery. Again, going back to laughing because there's no other response to something that's so tragic. The use of the word faggot in this movie is very interesting to me mm. because I don't think any of them have any concept of gayness all they know is that it's a mean word that hurts people i think even like saying it feels awful i don't think i've said that word out loud like ever oh god originally todd salons wanted the film to be called faggots and retards whoa i'm really glad it wasn't because i don't think it would have sold as well (laughs) oh my god but i think that really shows the extremity that he was going for and i think the movie captures that extremity that's terrifying Yeah, and her little friend, too. She abuses her friend, Ralphie. Yeah. I guess that's what I was trying to say earlier, that this film really doesn't condone anyone as being the hero. Exactly. It's a bunch of troubled people living in a troubled world. The mom, I had very mixed feelings about watching this because I think when I was a kid, I saw her as a very two-dimensional villain. And this time around, I still think of her that way, I guess. But Dawn is not an easy child to deal with. She is not an easy daughter at home. Sure. She is mean to her sister. She is objectively mean. Yeah. And the mother handles it in very wrong ways. But every time she disciplines Dawn, it's because Dawn has actually done something wrong. And that's something I don't think I appreciated when I was a kid. She basically tells her sister that she hates her at the dinner table. And the mom wants her to tell her sister she loves her. She does it in a very problematic way that doesn't get any good results. But to not want your daughter to tell your other daughter that she hates her, that's legit. (laughs) That's totally legit. So normally in the hero's journey, one of the major pivotal shifts 
is when the stranger or visitor enters the world, enters the sort of docile domestic world mm. and causes a disruption for the protagonist yeah. that then sends them on a quest. It seems pretty clear that the disruption in this movie is this boy named Steve Rogers oh, who sends her on this quest to be like, I'm going to get a boyfriend who is five years older than me and is smoking and doesn't know my name. <laughs> Those scenes are the best scenes of the movie. I think this movie would have had such less heart if they made Steve like a total dick. And he's not great, but he is nice to her. He does have moments of being genu- yeah. genuinely nice to her. He thinks she's kind of funny. Just seeing her in her little onesie pajamas. Oh my god, the costume design of this movie makes me want to barf. <laughs> it's so good and it's so, so horrible. Good. I can't believe it. All of her costumes, every single outfit she wears makes me want to gouge my eyes out. Did you have a Steve in your adolescence? We had a Steve Rogers at my school. That rock star? We were so obsessed with him because he was like a real life celebrity. You know, he was like, he was the lead singer of a rock band and he was like the lead in the school plays. Yeah. It was that he was a celebrity that was accessible to us, Mm. that felt like a mythic figure among us. Totally. She learns how to demand more for herself through her loving Steve. She begins to humor the idea that she could be better than she is now. She wants to dress better. She stares at her fingers thinking how she could suddenly become sexually active in a way that she does not understand at all. But, (laughs) But it's all for the sake of wanting to be older, smarter, more beautiful to impress Steve. Mm -hmm. And although I hate the idea that the vessel for her doing that is a boy, I love that she now has a motivation. She has a goal to not just sulk in self-pity, but to improve herself, to rise above her station that she's been given. And the, the tragedy of the film is that she doesn't do it because he doesn't want her and no one wants her. When she shows him her fingers. I just want to die. I just want to die in that moment. It's so horrible. I'm also obsessed with the bird's eye shot of her lying in bed. Yeah. Right after she meets him. Right after she meets him for the first time. And her world has been shaken. So good. She's so good in this movie. Yeah. She is staring up into the heavens, completely contemplating her entire existence. Yeah. And is that not a hero's journey if we've ever seen one? To have all of these new interactions with people she's never met before on her quest. Her quest to be better than she is. And she comes across Steve, who opens her world up. It's as if in that moment she's floating outside her body. Mm. It's interesting, though, that... This movie doesn't begin and end in domestic tranquility. No, and besides her little moment in New York, there's no geographical shift either. The journey she goes on is a mental one. I think it argues that domesticity is hell. Yeah, she's in the pits of hell at home and at school. Yeah, and that's really sad. Like we had talked about With Okja, I really love how this film makes a very clear statement about not wanting to make things too melodramatic and wanting to have levity in moments that otherwise would not have levity. The score in this movie, the soundtrack, the like electric guitar that's like banging the whole time. Yeah. Her just walking down the hall and there's like punk rock music behind her. A, makes you laugh. And B, reminds you not to 
take this movie so seriously as to think that it is hopeless, that she'll never get out. Because you know that it's an adult sound, right? Rock and roll is for teenagers and for adults. It's not really for middle schoolers. So you know that it's someone older curating the tone of her moment, Hmm. which immediately gives you perspective that this isn't the end. There's more. There's more to come. There's rock and roll to come. There's being a grown-up to follow. I think it also tells you not to take her story for granted. Yeah, totally. That the trials that she's going through Mm -hmm. are not less significant because she's a child. Totally. Right. They have as much weight and a heaviness as rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. Speaking of music, though. We have to talk about the song. (laughs) The song. This and Uptown Girls are sort of defined by these very iconic song numbers. I just, I'm obsessed with how lame Steve is as a musician. (laughs) The fact that it's like her brother's like... Klezmer band. Klezmer band. (laughs) Garage klezmer band. That he's only doing for his college resume. He doesn't even like music, it seems like. And that... And that Steve is in the band because he needs help in computer science. <laughs> and then they play Shalom Alechem at the I parents' did. anniversary party. You wrote that down. Is that what they're playing? They literally they... play Shalom Alechem. Are they not playing the anniversary song? They do the anniversary song, oh, which is to the tune of Hava Nagila. Right. And then it cuts to them watching video of the party in which they are playing Shalom Alechem with Steve singing the lead. (laughs) Wearing a lady. They're wearing, they're wearing like high school band uniforms. They're wearing the exact thing that like high school marching bands wear. Their khaki pants and white polo shirts. It is the dorkiest thing I've ever seen (laughs) and so satisfying. I want to go back to the moment where Dawn is watching them play because it's, you, you have a younger brother, but I have an older brother. And I think for all girls that have older brothers, I think it's such a familiar image for a young girl to be watching from a distance her older brother and his friends. Mm. And so for her to be sitting on the car as if she's separate from the moment, but wanting so badly to be a part of it, specifically to be a part of whatever's happening with Steve, like the Steve (laughs) narrative she wants to be a part of, her listening to this song and immediately singing along, even when it's probably the first time she's heard it, as if this is the life she wants. She wants to be older. She wants to be smooth and beautiful the way that she thinks Steve is. And she starts dancing. This weird arm dancing thing. It's the most lasting image of the movie to me. Like When I think of this movie, I think of her sitting on the car dancing, singing along to Welcome to the Dollhouse. Mm -hmm. More than any other moment in the movie, that's what I think of. That to me is what her journey is, is seeing Steve and wanting to be a hero for him and failing. What do you think about the fact that this film looks very grainy and it looks like it had a low budget? I feel like that's not totally unintentional. I mean, it might've been, it might've just been the circumstances of making the movie, but it feels like, like in the way of Tangerine or 13, it feels like it's a part of the story zone. I think this film fits kind of cleanly into the cinematic genre of the cynical indie comedy, <laughs> like Napoleon Dynamite, sure. is filmed in a very similar way. Clerks. Uh-huh. Or no, I want to say early Kevin Smith movies. Ghost World. Yeah. It's communicating the boringness of reality, the like dullness mm-hmm. 
And juxtaposing that with the heightened comedy and situations. The fact that the cinematography doesn't take too much of a theatrical point of view, like it's filmed pretty naturalistically, I think juxtaposed with the music and the absurd dialogue makes you think that all of this is really happening and that it's not heightened, right? And that it's not a hyperbole about middle school. It's really what's going on in this girl's life. I think what could be perceived as a lack of choice for the colors and the cinematography is actually very intentional. It reads that what's happening in Dawn's world is really happening. The way they all speak to each other is really happening. And I think if the film had taken on a more theatrical visual look, it might have actually undermined Dawn's experience because you would have thought of this movie as more surrealistic or more absurdist. And it, I think the point Todd Solondz is making is that it's not that absurd. It's not that surreal. Yeah. This is what it's like. So I really like that, that the film looks very real, even if the circumstances are, as you had said, theatricalized and, and heightened. I don't think I appreciated until this most recent viewing that Brandon assaults her. I think when I was a kid, I did not have that kind of vocabulary that when he pushes her up against the brick wall and he holds a knife to her neck and says strip, we don't know what would have followed if the teacher hadn't come out. We don't know what Brandon would have done. Maybe he would have gone further. Maybe he wouldn't have. Either way, that moment alone is assault. And I really wish I had known that as a kid. I wish that I had been privy to the conversations we're having now about Me Too, about what constitutes assault and harassment. She is being sexually harassed the entire film. I used to just think of this movie in terms of bullying. She's not being bullied. She's being abused. There's a huge difference there. She's being abused. She's being sexually harassed. She's being sexually abused. And I did not have that kind of understanding of those concepts when I was watching this movie at her age. And I wish I had been. And I'm glad that other kids now, who are maybe closer to Don's age, can watch this movie and see the abuse that she's receiving. They can see it for what it is. And they can see Brandon as more of a monster Mm. than maybe you and I were able to. So you think it's not a flaw of the film. It's a flaw of the conversation. Oh, yeah. In which the film is contextualized. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think this film could have been exactly the same if it had been released now. We would have thought of Brandon as a completely different character. Mm. It seems like all of the abuse in this movie centers on the fact that Dawn is quote-unquote ugly. Mm, totally. And even the marketing of this film. Mm. And like when I looked up a synopsis of the film online, it referenced her being an ugly girl. Wow. This is a story about what an ugly girl goes through. Yeah, and so I want to quickly discuss the theme of ugliness in this movie. I really related to Dawn as a kid because I think I related to that ugliness. I saw that she was being labeled as ugly, and I felt ugly, and therefore we had a bond. And now, being a grown-up who does not think of herself as ugly, was watching this movie and had a really sort of bittersweet revelation that Dawn is not that ugly. She's weird-looking, she's awkward, because everyone in middle school is weird looking and awkward. Heather Matarazzo as a young child, and even today, is quite beautiful. And in Princess Diaries, she's adorable. Like, she's she's really quite sweet looking in this movie. And it's the context of her life that makes her wear this suit of ugliness. She never smiles. She's wearing glasses that are too big for her face. She has absolutely terrible taste in clothes. 
And everyone around her is calling her ugly. If you accumulate all of those things, of course a person is going to carry themselves as if they are ugly. I don't think it had anything to do with how Heather Matarazzo actually looked. And I wish I had known that in middle school, that ugliness is how you hold yourself. Ugliness is not your face and it's not your body. It's what you believe you look like. She believed she was ugly, therefore she was. That's really what I think this movie is about. I don't think it's about a girl who is physically ugly. But she only believes it because that's what other people are telling her. A thousand percent. If the same girl was constantly told to believe in herself, I bet that her physical appearance might have seemed different. And that's the thing. Like, we can sit here and say that we believe that ugliness is only confidence and integrity, etc. The way we hold ourselves. But society mm. has very clear rules about what beauty is. And you think that the film is actually commenting on a character who doesn't fit those societal norms. Yeah. Sure. She doesn't look the way that, quote, beautiful women are supposed to look. Mm. And I think the movie makes a really interesting parallel between her and her brother Mark. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about Mark. Yeah. Who really looks like Heather Matarazzo's sibling. They he's, look very similar, and then Missy looks totally different. He's the boy version of Don. Yeah, which means he has confidence. <laughs> right. He gets all these other perks because he's a boy. <laughs> That's the interesting thing, that Mark doesn't suffer in the way that Don does because... He keeps coming back to the same mantra of his college resume. Which is hope, which is the future. Which is hope for the future, exactly. That there was always this mythology around nerdy boys in high school that, you know, I'll get through this, I'll go to college, I'll get a great job, and one day those jocks will be pumping my gas. Yeah, I'll be a millionaire and women will want me then. Mm-hmm. Little girls aren't allowed to have that same mythology. Right. That narrative is not promised to miserable girls in middle school. They are told that their hope and that their promise is their looks. And mm -hmm. so if they don't have those looks, they're screwed for the future. Yep. Dawn doesn't have that finish line of hope that Mark has. Yeah. This is very subtle, but it's the moment when she sees Steve in the garage with an older girl. God, yeah. That's not going to be Dawn's future. And that's what she learns. I don't even think that moment is about Steve rejecting her. I think it's more about Dawn seeing an older, beautiful girl. And those are the types of girls that Steve goes with. Yeah. Now that it's been like 15 years since I've seen this movie revisiting it, I'm so, so grateful that it exists. And I'm also, in the same breath, so grateful that we have so many other movies about young girls, that you and I are in a position to discuss this movie in dialogue with a movie like Okja and a yeah. movie like Pan's Labyrinth, neither of which existed when I was watching Welcome to the Dollhouse when I was a kid. Neither of those movies were around. In fact, most of the movies we're discussing on this podcast probably weren't around in 1995 when this movie came out. Welcome to the Dollhouse, at least for me, was one of the first movies I was exposed to that showed women like this. And for that, I'm really, really grateful for it. And it has a special place in my heart. What does it mean that all three of the movies this week were written and directed by men? Totally. I feel like this is our first episode, right? That yeah. has that? Mm -hmm. Well, they were all writer-directors, and they were all men. Mm -hmm. Don't know. 
Do you think it says? I mean, we definitely said in our first episode that it's much more likely for truthful movies about women to be created by women. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that men who create truthful movies about women shouldn't be honored for those achievements. I feel nothing but tremendous gratitude and debt to these three men who took it upon themselves to tell these really, really interesting, nuanced, important stories about girls. Yeah. About young girls. Yeah. I want more men to join this party. We're having a great time at this party. In fact, I would argue that it is a feminist act for a man with power to devote his power to uplifting the stories of women. I think it's great. I think all men should do this. Yeah. I mean, not to say that there aren't plenty of examples of stories about women told by men that are exploitative and... Um, right. Totally. Yeah. And Off eroticized. And yeah, exactly. These three got it right. <laughs> they did their research. Yeah. This has been a crazy whirlwind of an episode. I loved it. And we're in October. So <laughs> there's something really important that we have to do on our next episode, <laughs> which comes out on Halloween. And it's all about witches, baby. <laughs> our next episode is entitled Fierce Witches. We'll be exploring the history, culture, and moral questions around witchcraft, both positive and negative, everything all about witches. Everything you've ever wanted to know about witches. <laughs> I am so excited. You love witches. I'm excited to get into it. The first movie we'll be covering is the 2015 horror film, The Witch in which a young woman and her Puritan family are banished to the wilderness of 1630s New England, where they have to contend with the dark forces in the woods. The next movie we'll be covering is the 1976 cult classic, Carrie, in which a high schooler from an abusive home navigates being bullied at school while developing telekinetic abilities. Classic. And the third movie we'll be watching is the 1996 high school horror drama, The Craft, <laughs> in which the new girl in school is taken in by a clique of outcast girls who practice witchcraft. And for those three movies, we will be giving a trigger warning for violence and self-harm. This has been a fabulous week. I love the hero's journey. I love witches. I'm so excited. This is all just like giving me all these fantasies of power. <laughs> I'm having weird dreams this month. It's all good. As always, keep up with us on social media. Email us your voicemails. You can find links to watch all of those movies on our website, feministpopcorn.com. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Feminist Popcorn is produced and hosted by Samantha Rare and Elizabeth Frankel. Our theme music is by Barrett Riggins. Our cover art is by Hannah Perry. Keep up with us on Instagram and Facebook at Feminist Popcorn and tweet us at official underscore fempop. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. 